Our Old Covenant reading for the evening is taken from the book of Ruth, Ruth chapter 2, beginning at verse 17. We'll be reading to verse 23 this evening, which is also the end of the chapter, the word of the Lord. So Ruth gleaned in the field until evening. Then she beat out what she had gleaned, and it was about an ephah of barley. And she took it up and went into the city. Her mother-in-law saw what she had gleaned. She also brought out and gave her what food she had left over after being satisfied. And her mother-in-law said to her, Where did you glean today, and where have you worked? Blessed be the man who took notice of you. So she told her mother-in-law with whom she had worked, and said, The man's name with whom I work today is Boaz. And Naomi said to her daughter-in-law, May he be blessed by the Lord, whose kindness has not forsaken the living or the dead. Naomi also said to her, The man is a close relative of ours, one of our redeemers. And Ruth the Moabite said, Besides, he said to me, You shall keep close by my young men until they have finished all my harvest. And Naomi said to Ruth, her daughter-in-law, It is good, my daughter, that you go, you go out with his young women, lest in another field you be assaulted. So she kept close to the young women of Boaz, gleaning until the end of the barley and wheat harvests. And she lived with her mother-in-law. Here endeth the Old Covenant reading. The New Covenant reading for this evening is taken from Paul's letter to the Philippians. Philippians chapter 4, beginning at verse 10, we'll be reading to verse 20 this evening. The word of our God. I rejoiced in the Lord greatly, that now at length you have revived your concern for me. You were indeed concerned for me, but you had no opportunity. Not that I am speaking of being in need, for I have learned in whatever situation I am to be content. I know how to be brought low, and I know how to abound. In any and every circumstance, I have learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. Yet it was kind of you to share my trouble. And you Philippians yourselves know that in the beginning of the gospel, when I left Macedonia, no church entered into partnership with me in giving and receiving except you only. Even in Thessalonica, you sent me help for my needs once and again. Not that I seek the gift, but I seek the fruit that increases to your credit. I have received full payment and more. I am well supplied having received from Epaphroditus the gifts you sent, a fragrant offering, a sacrifice acceptable and pleasing to God. And my God will supply every need of yours according to his riches and glory in Christ Jesus. To our God and Father be glory forever and ever. Amen. Please turn with me once again back to Ruth chapter 2, beginning at verse 17, because this will be the primary portion of God's word for our evening sermon. What is it that leads people to turn from going their own way 
to be turned to trusting and loving the Lord? It's actually a very important question to ask in terms of how we minister to other people. But it's also an important question as we minister to our own hearts. Because each one of us needs throughout the coming days and weeks and months and as many years as the Lord will give us to keep being turned from going our own way to trusting and loving the Lord even more. So my question for you this evening is simply this. What exactly is it that leads us to trust and love the Lord more fully? Now we should bear in mind that repentance is always a work of God's sovereign and free grace. As our shorter catechism puts it, repentance unto life is a saving grace whereby a sinner out of a true sense of his sin and apprehension of the mercy of God in Christ doth with grief and hatred of his sin turn from it unto God with full purpose of and endeavor after new obedience. There are two things I want to particularly draw your attention to in that definition. First, repentance is a saving grace. We cannot work it up in our own power. Now, most of you get that you can't do that before you become a Christian. You only become a Christian because God causes you to be born again. But I want you to remember that you can't do that now that you're a Christian either. We remain completely dependent upon the grace of God that the Holy Spirit would change our hearts, would inflame them with a desire to become more like Jesus. And therefore, as we hear Christ calling to us, that we should turn to him, we should cry out in response, turn us, O Lord, and we will be turned. Second, while repentance involves a true sense of our sin, it is fundamentally not about feeling bad over what you have done. It's a very common confusion in our culture, and I'm including the church culture. But repentance is not about feeling bad about your sin. It's about being turned from going your own way, your own sinful ways, back to God. And to embrace him as you receive Christ as your all-sufficient Savior. It's about God renewing his relationship with us, or perhaps starting a very new relationship that you've never had before. Back in Ruth chapter 1, we saw how Naomi had become rather bitter in her spirit. She appears to have been living almost entirely on the horizontal plane, and entirely in terms of her own circumstances. And if her circumstances were good, she'd be happy to say nice things about God. But when her circumstances became tough, she actually complained about the way the Almighty was treating her. In fact, she even blames God for her difficult situation without any personal sense of responsibility for her and her husband's faithless conduct in leaving the promised land and in not trusting the promises and simply going their own way and then having it turn out badly, she turns and blames the Lord. Uh, you'll recall that when she returns to Bethlehem, she tells the women who are greeting her, do not call me Naomi, but call me Mara, for the Almighty has dealt very bitterly with me. I went away full, and the Lord has brought me back empty. See, from Naomi's point of view, the Lord was the source of her hardship rather than the source of blessing in her life. 
But in tonight's passage, that all begins to change. That's actually something I want you to follow as you read through the rest of the book of, of Ruth. We call it the book of Ruth, but actually it talks more about Naomi than it does about Ruth. And what I want you to trace from tonight's passage all the way through chapter 4 is how the Lord changes Naomi's heart. And we're going to talk about that this evening. I want to encourage you to pay close attention to see both why and how this change takes place. And so we begin with Ruth in verse 17. So Ruth gleaned in the field until evening. Then she beat out what she had gleaned, and it was about an ephah of barley. Now my previous sermon with you, because of providential reasons, which was a few weeks back, I freely confessed that the back-breaking work that Ruth engaged in in gleaning in the fields is something I couldn't do for more than a couple of hours at best. Um, that's one of those, I'll say, minor losses that comes to us with age. But Ruth worked from morning until night doing difficult, back-breaking work. Think about the migrants that sometimes go through and do the, the farming work where they're picking fruits and stuff by hand. It was incredibly difficult work. Here's why this is important for us to remember. Um, Ruth is described as a noble woman, a valiant woman, a remarkable woman of God. And part of the way that she shows forth her godliness is through perseverance in what must have been absolutely exhausting and demanding work. Trusting the Lord in hard work go hand in hand with one another. Um, Thomas Edison once famously quipped, most people miss opportunity when they meet it because it usually goes around wearing overalls and looks a lot like hard work. Beloved Ruth did not miss opportunity. She was not afraid to get her hands dirty and her back tired. When the foreman told Boaz about Ruth, he mentioned that she had been working from morning until that very hour, only taking a short break to rest. Now it is evening, and we see that Ruth has not only worked in the field until evening, she then beat out what she had gleaned. We're not actually told where she did that, where she beat it out, but presumably it was at the threshing floor of Boaz, that's where he beat out grains. And as you know, the threshing floor will become rather important just a little bit later in the story. And what did Ruth receive for her day's labor? Uh, we're told that she received an ephah of barley grain. Now we have a bit of a problem here. If you go down to Market Basket and you ask them for an ephah of flour, um, they're not going to measure that out for you. And it does turn out that trying to translate uh, quantities from the ancient world is a pretty in inexact science. You can't just go quart, quart, gallon, gallon, liter, liter. Uh, there's a lot of guessing. But from the work of archaeologists digging up various pots and so on and some literary advice, uh, uh, literary evidence that we have, um, it does seem that what Ruth had was between 30 and 50 pounds of barley. And of course, you'll recall that uh, part of that was, of course, the Lord's direct blessing, but part of it was Boaz wanted to make it easier for her. He even told his own men to pull out some of the grain and leave it for her so she would have this super abundance as this poor Moabite, who had come to take shelter under the Lord's wings, was willing to work hard for her own work. Ruth's faith and hard work had been blessed abundantly, 
both by the Lord and by Boaz. Now please mark this. You're going to see this in just a moment. These are not two separate sources of blessing. The Lord blesses Ruth through Boaz. Boaz's efforts to be a faithful, godly man are precisely the thing that the Lord uses to be a, bring blessing to both uh, Ruth and to her mother-in-law, Naomi. Boaz was a man after God's own heart, and as a man after God's own heart, he'd become a channel for divine blessing. As tonight's passage makes clear, it is ultimately the Lord's blessing that matters. Ruth is a remarkable woman, but this story is not about Ruth working for God. Let's stop and think about that for a moment. The story is not about Ruth working for God. God doesn't look down at Ruth going, boy, she's putting in a good effort. I ought to reward that. The story is not fundamentally about Ruth working for God, but about God working for Ruth. That is one of the great surprises about Christianity. Uh, if you go about the ancient religions of the Mediterranean world or the ancient Near East, what you'll discover is all the so-called gods were served by human beings. And that makes good sense to us from our fallen human natures. The lesser serves the greater. The gods are greater. And so the pagans imagine they even fed the gods in terms of serving them. And then we come to the true and living God who spoke the universe into existence, and we discover the most astonishing thing. Instead of God fundamentally saying, you shall serve me, God says, I shall serve you. And if you go back and read the Pentateuch, you're going to look at all those verbs that say served. You're going to be surprised to find out that the primary subject is God serving man. As the prophet Isaiah put it, for since the world began, no ear has heard and no eye has seen a God like you who works for those who wait for him. Isn't that amazing? The God who spoke the universe into existence, created everything that ever existed, serves his people. It's just astonishing. Waiting on the Lord, as we clearly see in the example of Ruth, and also with the commands throughout Scripture, there's no ambiguity here, doesn't mean being idle. It means resting our trust and our hope in the Lord with the confidence that he will work for our good. And that is just what the Lord does. In fact, Naomi is so deeply moved by what the Lord has done for Ruth that it changes her heart. Naomi is deeply moved by the steadfast love that the Lord is showing to Ruth, but also, as it were, to her dead husband. Uh, look at verse 18 with me. And Ruth took the barley and went into the city. Her, her mother-in-law saw what she had gleaned. She also brought out and gave her what food she had left over after being satisfied. I think that's a really beautiful and tender detail. If you remember the previous portion of this passage, um, Boaz had invited Ruth to sit down with him at the table. And he actually dipped the bread in the sauce and gives it to her. Take and eat. You are welcome here is what he's saying. And he's making that clear to everyone else. You are welcome here. You belong. And so Ruth ate until she was fully satisfied and now we see that Boaz had so abundantly provided for her 
if you want to call it lunch, she had leftovers. Plenty left over even from that meal to bring home and to share with her mother-in-law. And Naomi is just blown away by how much food Ruth had brought home. I mean, quite obviously, in the ordinary course of events, if you were a gleaner going out to pick up the leftovers in the field, you did not come home with 30 to 50 pounds of grain. And so she asks, where did you glean today? And where have you worked? But as you know, Naomi's not particularly concerned about the where. She's concerned about the who. Who is the man that took notice of you? May the Lord bless him. Blessed be the man who took notice of you. Now at this point, we actually can't tell whether or not Naomi's being um, rightly faithful in this phrase. Because just like in the modern world, you'll have people when you share your troubles, they'll say, I'll pray for you. You know? And, and they're not going to pray for you at all. They don't really believe in God. They don't trust God. They, people use that sort of religious language in our day. People use that sort of religious language in the ancient world. And Naomi's living in the time of the judges. She herself has been rebellious against God. She's been obstinate. She's gone her own way. And most of the people in the surrounding Israel have also rebelled terribly against God. Everybody's doing what's right in their own eyes. So this is kind of a throwaway line. May they be blessed. Well, perhaps at first we could take it that way. But as Ruth unfolds what happens, we see that God has truly changed Naomi's heart. Ruth tells her mother-in-law that the man is Boaz. And then we see Naomi's outlook on life is really being transformed by God's grace. Look at the first half of verse 20 with me. Verse 20. And Naomi said to her daughter-in-law, May he be blessed by the Lord, whose kindness is not forsaken, the living or the dead. See, Naomi is not simply focused on Boaz's kindness. She's now focused on the Lord's kindness through Boaz. Do you see how radically different that is from chapter 1? Where she's coming home saying, you know, call me Mara, which means bitter, because the Lord's hand is against me. And you know what the Lord has done? I went out full. He brought me back empty. She's complaining about how the Lord's treating her. And now she's saying the Lord has maintained his steadfast love, his chesed toward her, and to her family, at least her dead husband and presumably her two dead sons as well. It was neither the law nor Ruth's hard work, at least by themselves, that led Naomi to a renewed relationship with the Lord. What changed Naomi's heart was the realization that the Lord loved and cared for her family. Please let that sink in, because that's very important for your own spiritual walk, but it's also very important as you raise your children, as you minister to your co-workers, as you meet and talk with your neighbors who do not yet know the Lord, and those who do. Repentance is not driven by a deep sense of guilt because someone has pounded God's law into you. The law is very important. God does use to convict us of sin. But that is not what leads us to repentance. What lead, led Naomi to repentance is what leads us to repentance as well. To apprehend the astonishing mercies of God in Jesus Christ. This is a critical reminder to us. We cannot beat people or guilt trip people into repentance. 
Let me be clear. We do need to be, we need to hold out God's law to people and to ourselves. His law is holy and righteous and good. And frankly, increasingly, you're going to need to take clear stands in our society as people try to press you to affirm things that God says he hates. You are going to have to stand boldly, and that standing boldly may be used by God to inspire other people. But the primary way that God leads people to repentance is when they discover that he is a merciful and gracious God, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love, and that he has put away our sins through Jesus Christ. Telling people that they need to straighten up their lives is not the gospel. The gospel is the good news of the victory of God in Jesus Christ over Satan, sin, and death on behalf of his people. It is only when people come to know the goodness and mercy of God in Jesus Christ that they are empowered to actually turn from their sins, to love the Lord, and to walk in newness of life. Now there's one small but important point that I want to make about Boaz. Naomi rightly gives thanks to the Lord, whose kindness is not forsaken, the living or the dead. But as he so frequently does, the Lord doesn't simply zap Ruth and Naomi from heaven. You know, that is not the ordinary way in which God shows grace to people. He does actually do that sometimes. But it's not the ordinary way. The ordinary way in which God brings grace and mercy into other people's lives is through his own people. So you have this extraordinary privilege of being an instrument in God's hands to turn people to him. Um, I think that message ought to be really encouraging to us. I will remind you, by the way, when Boaz was doing these things, he wasn't thinking, you know, someday this story is going to be written down in Scripture, so I better make sure I get it right. This is just Boaz going about his life, right? Doing justice, loving mercy, walking humbly with his God. He couldn't possibly have expected that his, his kindness to this, this Moabite woman was going to somehow be using God's hand to change the world. The amazing thing is that the Lord uses earthen vessels like you and me as instruments in his sovereign hands to both spread the gospel and to bless our brothers and sisters in Christ. As the Apostle Paul would later write to the Corinthians, God through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave to us the ministry of reconciliation. Let me ask you a simple question. It's not so easy to answer do you ever wonder what you ought to be doing so you can have a significant life that will matter not only for right now, but for all eternity? And the truth is, we do have to give some serious thought about what we often call our vocations, our callings in life, and what paths we should take, and whether or not we should change them, and all those sorts of things. But do you know what you need to do to be significant? Trust Jesus. Love God, love your neighbor. You don't have to figure it out. If you do that, God will use you in the lives of other people, and he will be glorified in you. That's very liberating. Uh, even many Christians often think they have to figure it out. But the primary calling on your life is not to be an engineer. It's not to be a lawyer. It's not to be a pastor. Uh, those are all perfectly good things to do. It's not even to be a husband or a wife or a father or a mother. The primary calling on your life is simply this. Trust the Lord. Commit your ways to him. And therefore follow him. And he 
will establish your steps. Do you remember what Jesus said right before he gave us the Great Commission? You know, uh, Jesus does not call us to go out and accomplish the Great Commission in our power. Think about the sermon you hear, heard this morning from, from the Gospel according to Luke. Jesus does not call us to go out and to accomplish God's will in this world in our own power. Thankfully, he calls us to do it in his. And so the thing he says before the Great Commission and after the Great Commission is very important to us. Before he sends us out, he says, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. See, he sends us out in his power. And then he says, and by the way, please don't forget this. I am with you always, even to the ends of the earth. The King of Kings has called each of you to be part of the most significant calling that anyone can ever have. And by the power of the triune God, it is a mission that cannot possibly fail. How cool is that? You get to be significant and you don't have to worry about messing it up. Uh, we have seen that God's lavish grace, that it is God's lavish grace that leads Naomi to repentance. And we can easily see how the Lord used Boaz in this plan. But let me quickly tie those two things together. What part did Boaz play in blessing both Ruth and Naomi? See, Boaz did not look at Ruth and give her a long speech about how she needed to leave behind her Moabite ways. I mean, you know how those Moabites are, right? By the way, that isn't just cultural prejudice. The Moabites were infamous at this time for their immorality and their idolatry. But Boaz did not give her a speech about leaving behind all her Moabite habits and her Moabite ways. Nor did Boaz give Ruth a program for memorizing and practicing the law of Moses. I do commend to you that you regularly study God's word. You, you memorize. It's very powerful in your life. That's not what Boaz did with Ruth. What did Boaz do? Boaz did justice. He loved mercy. And he walked humbly with his God. And the Lord then used him to bring about great blessing. Indeed, as we'll see by the end of the book, to change the entire course of the history of the world. Beloved, the same is true for you this week. We all want to have significant lives, but if you will simply do justice, love mercy, and walk humbly with your God, then the Lord himself will take care of using you to be an instrument of his blessing. You and I don't need to figure everything out. We just need to be faithful. Now, of course, if the story simply ended right here, it would actually be a pretty miserable story. Um, it might be inspiring a bit, but without the power, uh, it would be a pretty miserable story. It is beautiful to see the transformation in Naomi's heart, but what we should remember is, is that repentance by itself never saves anyone. By the way, neither does faith. Now, I, I want to be very clear. Um, Sola fide is very important to me. This is one of those hills I'm willing to die on. Justification is by faith alone. But sometimes we have to remind ourselves of the longer expression here, lest we get confused and think we're saved on the basis of our faith. Justification is by grace alone, through faith alone, 
because of Christ alone. See, your sins are washed away in Christ. You are adopted as a child of God in Christ. Naomi's repentance does not change her life, ultimately. What changes her life is she's been grafted into the kingdom of God by the Savior who will one day come. Faith is the sole instrument of your justification before God, but it is not the ground of your justification. The ground of your full acceptance with God is the person and work of Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ provides the righteousness and forgiveness that we need to be made clean and whole again. I want to focus on that word whole here in just a moment. And the Old Testament gives us a beautiful picture of this by establishing the role of a kinsman redeemer. Right? So that this is one of those types that's pointing forward to Christ is Boaz is going to serve as a kinsman redeemer. So please look at verse 20b with me. That's the second half of verse 20. Verse 20b. Naomi also said to Ruth, the man is a close relative of ours, one of our redeemers. Now, since we don't live under the Mosaic Covenant, you don't think a lot about kinsmen redeemers. Um, I want to clarify this just a little bit. Uh, the role of the kinsman redeemer in the Old Testament, how it points forward to Christ, uh, is really significant. First, I want to tell you what it does not mean. Kinsmen redeemers are not obligated to marry anyone. That's important to get to understand the book of Ruth. So part of our problem is we think kinsman redeemer in the Old Testament, we think of Boaz. Boaz marries Ruth. Boaz is a kinsman redeemer. We connect the dots and say kinsman redeemer have to marry this woman. And that's not true. See, the, the laws about marriage in the Old Testament are called leveret marriage laws. And the leveret marriage laws only apply to the brother of the deceased man. Right? Now, I would argue, scholars debate this, I would argue the unmarried brother of the, 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 the uh, person who died, but there's a debate among scholars. But the important thing to realize for Ruth is not only is her husband dead, his brother is also dead. There's no one to fulfill the leveret marriage laws. Now, if you get that, you'll understand, first of all, that when Naomi was telling Ruth, uh, and by the way, her, her sister Orpah, look, you can't come back to, to Israel with me. There's no hope there. She wasn't hiding the fact that, well, if you come back to Israel, you know, someone's going to have to marry you. You'll be taken care of. It'll be great. Because it doesn't work that way. Uh, but the second thing you want to do is then realize how do these two things get connected in the life of Ruth. We're going to talk about that more when we get to chapter 4. But I'll tease it out just a little bit for you tonight. But the marriage laws are leveret laws. The kinsman redeemer laws are about the land. Not about marriage at all. Here's the point. Ruth's brother-in-law is dead there is nobody in Israel required to marry either Ruth or Naomi. As I say, if you remember this point, it will help you understand that Naomi was um, telling the truth when she was telling her daughters-in-law, it's going to be really hard if you come back with me. I don't, have any, I don't have any children for you. It's going to be a very, very difficult struggle for you in the land of Israel. The question is, how do those things get connected, though? The property and the marriage? The answer is Naomi doesn't. See, Naomi controls the land. 
Naomi takes her land, everything she owns, all her wealth and status in Israel, and she assigns it to her daughter-in-law and says, my land goes with her. Do you understand what a radical shift that is in Naomi's heart? She comes back to Israel complaining that the Lord's against her, and because the Lord has shown such grace to her, she takes everything she has to bless her Moabite daughter-in-law. Well, we'll talk more about that in the coming weeks. But beloved, what I want you to see tonight is quite simply, that's how repentance works. It's the grace of God to Naomi through Ruth that leads Naomi to repentance. And repentance, while it's in your heart, doesn't stay there. It changed Naomi's life so that she actually took what was most important to her and assigned it to her daughter-in-law so that now she would become a blessing in her life. Okay, back to the kinsman redeemer. There, there were four basic responsibilities that the kinsman redeemer had under the Mosaic Covenant. First, the kinsman redeemer was to ensure that the hereditary property of the clan never passes out of the clan. Right? That, that's the big picture. That, that's the, the desire here. The focus of the kinsman redeemer is on land. Because the idea is maintaining the inheritance all the way down throughout history. Second, the kinsman redeemer was to maintain the freedom of individuals within the clan by buying them back or redeeming them. So we have the term re kinsman redeemer. Redeem the land, redeem the people of those who had sold themselves into slavery because of poverty. So you have a nephew who, who has difficulty struggling in business and the way it would often work, if they had a lot of debts that couldn't pay them back, they would sell themselves into slavery for two, three, four years as a way of paying off the debts. And the kinsman redeemer, if they had the financial resources, should go and say, I'll pay that debt. I don't want my nephew to be in this sort of indentured servanthood or slavery. Third, because there were no public prosecutors in the ancient world, the kinsman redeemers were responsible to see that his murdered relatives were vindicated by courts. And fourth, the kinsman redeemer would receive restitution money on behalf of a deceased victim. Right? So someone that gets killed, they can't receive the restitution money. The kinsman redeemer would because they're supposed to help take care of the rest of the clan. What is that all about when you roll it together? One word. Wholeness. Not holiness. Wholeness. Shalom. Right? In ancient Israel. The kinsman redeemer was to restore shalom, the fullness of blessing to the lives of his family members, even if they had fallen into bondage or economic ruin through their own bad judgment and their own sins. And Naomi is frankly thrilled to realize that this godly and noble man is a near relative of her deceased husband. Boaz is someone who might make her and her family whole again and reestablish them in Israel. Now we're going to look at how Boaz fulfills and even goes far beyond his responsibilities when we look at chapter 4 together. But this evening we ought to see how Boaz is a type of Jesus Christ. God created the whole Redeemer kinsman model in order for it to point forward to Christ so that we would understand what his son was doing for us as his people. Jesus Christ is our kinsman Redeemer. How did the second person of the Trinity become our kinsman? Beloved, he volunteered. 
He, he chose to leave heaven to take to himself a true human nature. And not simply to take a true human nature. John the Baptist had been sent before him proclaiming a baptism of repentance for forgiveness of sins. And Jesus, the spotless Lamb of God, the one without any sin at all, submits to a baptism of repentance. He had nothing to confess. Now, now we should remember that in one sense, it's wrong for us to say we follow Jesus in baptism. Uh, that's a popular thing to say in North American evangelicalism in certain Baptist circles. It's better to realize that Jesus, as it were, comes to the waters from the other side. We need to go to baptism so that we will be cleansed. But Jesus actually chose and committed publicly to identifying with sinners. So as it were, he would cleanse the waters from the pollution that comes from us. Jesus volunteered. Jesus committed to identifying with us throughout his earthly life. As our kinsman redeemer, Jesus ensures that the title deed to our hereditary property that is the entire earth is restored to the Son of Man and to all who love his appearing. Beloved, who inherits the earth? The meek. You know who the meek are? Those who bow beneath Jesus Christ. So the first thing to see is that Jesus ensures that the title deed to our hereditary property, which is the entire earth, is restored to the Son of Man and to all who love his appearing. Second, Jesus establishes and maintains the freedom of the sons of God by redeeming us from the bondage of sin. Third, Jesus conquers all his and our enemies and will one day openly vindicate every single disciple, every single one of us, who by God's grace does the Father's will. Fourth, Jesus ensures that everything the world robs us of is fully repaid to the people of God in eternity. Love, everything you lose on this earth, you only lose temporarily. God will give you far more than that forever. As the Apostle Paul would say, in light of the eternal weight of glory, what we lose and suffer in this world are just but light and momentary afflictions. That is what your kinsman redeemer, Jesus Christ our Lord, does for you. It is what he has done, it is what he is doing right now, and it is what he will surely do for you in the future. As Paul puts it in 2 Corinthians, you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you through his poverty might become rich. That's what Jesus, your kinsman redeemer, has done for you. So how should we respond to this astonishing gift that God himself has truly become a human being in order to serve as our kinsman redeemer? Perhaps we should look to see how Ruth responded to the grace that the Lord was showing her. Look at verses 21 through 23 with me. And Ruth the Moabite said, Besides, he said to me, You shall keep close by my young men, until they have finished all my harvest. And Naomi said to Ruth, her daughter-in-law, It is good, my daughter, that you go out with these young women, lest in another field you be assaulted. So she kept close to the young women of Boaz, gleaning until the end of the barley and wheat harvest, 
and she lived with her mother-in-law. What did Ruth do? Ruth went back to work. Ruth must have been out in the fields for another six or seven weeks, from late April to early June by modern calendars. Although Ruth was filled with gratitude for the Lord's provision through Boaz, her life would have looked rather ordinary and, frankly, rather hard. Beloved, that's the ordinary Christian life. You know, we all love those dramatic moments in history, and so we can easily imagine that the most important thing are those, those big moments you want to make movies about. Martin Luther standing there at the Council of Worms going, here I stand. God help me, I can do no other. Well, God does use those things. But that's not the way God ordinarily advances his kingdom. He normally does it quietly and without any outward fanfare at all. We shouldn't imagine, as we read the New Testament, that every day will bring a fresh miracle into our lives. Beloved, by definition, miracles are rare. We don't call them ordinaries. We call them miracles. And perhaps the lives like the one that Martin Luther lived are even rarer still. Most of a faithful Christian's life, to borrow from Edison once again, wears overalls and looks a lot like hard work. But beloved, that is only half the story. The hard work of the Christian life is a lot like a stained glass window. When, you, when you're outside the church and you're looking at the window, it looks just plain and gray and drab. But when you get inside and the sun is streaming through it, you begin to see it in its sparkling beauty. That's what the Christian life is like. That's what it's like to live with Jesus Christ. From the outside, our lives may look rather dull. But with the light of the love of God shining through them, our ordinary-looking lives can become something extraordinary. And this happens more and more as we come to trust and love our kinsman redeemer, Jesus Christ, because God is at work. As the Lord tells us through the prophet Isaiah, for since the world began, no ear has heard, no eye has seen a God like you who works for those who wait for him. So let us wait on the Lord with grateful hearts, for our faithful kinsman has redeemed us, and he ever lives to make intercession for us. Amen.